the speed at which the capital is flowing in this space now, if I were a traditional wealth firm, I wouldn't feel more relaxed and say Robo's dead. I would feel much more anxious to see my competition come from digital lenders and neobanks and Coinbase, which has got 30 million users and basically all the incumbents. I would see it as a much more competitive space because the industries that in the past didn't touch this are also in there as well. After Lex Sokolin launched one of the first robo-advisors back when he was still in grad school, he learned that if you're right in your business hypothesis, you don't have to chase the market. Eventually, the market comes to you. I spoke with Lex about how robo-advisors and mobile apps like Robinhood have blown up the status quo, about whether the Eastern or Western fintech models will be the ultimate winner, and a whole lot more on this episode of the Wealth Management Today podcast. fantastic day in the wonderful world of wealth tech. My guest for this episode was Lex Sokolin. And while we were both in London when we recorded it, we couldn't be in the same location due to the additional levels of lockdown being imposed here in the UK. But we made the best of it and leveraged the power of both the internet and Zoom calling to bring this to you. Of course, I'm your host, Craig Eskowitz, and I run a consulting firm called Ezra Group. We're experts in everything related to wealth tech. And this is a part in the program where I usually give our standard marketing pitch but I'm going to go off script a bit so I can get a plug in for our market research team that has been doing some incredible work led by our head of research, Gene Sullivan. If you're running a fintech firm looking to expand into a new market in wealth management, what you need is data and insights on the client segments you're targeting. You need to know what those prospective clients are looking for, the size of the attainable market, revenue potential, the top competitors, and any functionality gaps in your product that need to be addressed. You can get all this and more from Ezra Group Research. So if you're on the executive team at a growing fintech vendor, contact Ezra Group right now by going to our website, ezragroupllc.com, and clicking on the button that says schedule a complimentary discovery session at the bottom of the homepage. And before I forget, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a five-star review for us on iTunes. We would really appreciate it. And I'd like to welcome to the program our guest. I'm happy to introduce Lex Sokolin. Global FinTech co-head at Consensus, a blockchain software company. Lex, how's it going, man? It's going great. Uh, wonderful to be back on. I'm glad to have you back on. I could have you on every week, but let's do this. Let's just let's go to an island uh, where <laughs> there are no politics and no health scares, and there are no fire tornadoes, and just do a podcast all the time. <laughs> no, no, no murder hornets. Jeez, yeah. Uh, <laughs> All the, I would say there's a checkbox next to every symptom of the apocalypse right now. So yeah. let's see how 2021 looks. Well, you know, for um, it, uh, uh, on, during Passover, um, you always read out the, the 10 plagues in Egypt, you know, the old 10 commandments, yeah. 10 plagues. So you, yeah. you list them out during the, the, the Seder, you know, the fire, blood, whole boil, you know, locusts. So we, we're checking them off, right? We got them. We sure got them. Yeah. Um, which is a great transition to the, to the, you know, to investments and markets. <laughs> exactly. It's a good, I'm, I'm always looking for the segue. So, um, can you give us the, uh, the 30 second overview of consensus? Absolutely. So, uh, consensus is an 
open source programmable blockchain software company. You know, it's 30 seconds, not easy to say, right? So what does that mean? That's, that's Ethereum uh, is the name of that open source programmable blockchain. And that means both building software that is on the next computing paradigm, which is programmable uh, decentralized ledgers, um, and also just the concept of financial infrastructure. So you're combining this next generation computing paradigm with a concept of next generation uh, financial instruments, whether they are funds or trading or investments. And so you're kind of in this world of both applications and uh, digital assets. And so consensus lives at the intersection of that. Um, some folks might know our products like MetaMask, the crypto wallet, Infura, which is the developer platform, as well as um, the group that I co-lead called Codify, which focuses on digital assets, decentralized finance, um, and then blockchain for large financial institutions. All good stuff. And um, I've done a couple of blog posts and, and podcasts about the, the whole crypto space, and I'm, I, I'm really excited by it been for a couple of years. Um, haven't made the move like you have to jump fully into it with both I feet. Did. But- I'm yeah. impressed you did that, uh, but uh, I love talking about it. So, well, I like to to link it to the wealth management industry and and, uh, and keep everything. There's, there's so much going on that that overlaps between the two. Um, and if we can also do a quick dive, I know you've been on the program before, and so people can go back and listen. But in case they didn't hear that one and don't know much about you, you've got a, a long history in the wealth management space. Can you just give a quick overview of your history from there and how you got to where you are now? Absolutely. So I uh, vacillate between kind of frontier technology and the edge of entrepreneurship for uh, what now is broadly fintech. And then on the other side, I spent I spent my time in uh, the the large incumbent financial institutions. So I started my career at Lehman Brothers in a strategy role for a fairly chunky wealth management business. It was um, I'd say about two hundred billion. In, in AUM all in about 80 of 80 of that was private wealth and the rest was institutional. Um, and so I spent a couple of years going through, uh, you know, like the McKinsey approach to figuring out how to run a business like that, which means fire all your small clients, charge everybody $5,000 minimum uh, account fees and you know, sell them a whole bunch of private equity so that you can uh, book your revenue up front and live off the trailer, you know? And so, um, Having that experience early and then watching the whole thing deconstruct and reconstruct again into Barclays was very formative because um, Barclays had Barclays could buy one different assets from Lehman. It could buy the capital markets business, which was the investment bank and the broker dealer attached to it. You know, so it's like the, the brokerage trading culture and all the um, all the commission based stuff that went along with it. Or they could have bought Newberger Berman, which was also inside of Lehman and was the other, the asset management side, right, with uh, a much more fiduciary approach. And I think Newberger's results continue to tell that story. And watching that come apart and then come back together was really informative for me and gave me very early on the uh, courage to say, this stuff, it looks hard, but you could just do it. I mean, there's nothing special about any of these people. Uh, I mean, they're all good at their jobs and they're smart, but there's nothing particularly special about uh, being in finance. You can try it. And so I, um, in my early 20s, started a a robo-advisor called Nestec Wealth. I was at Columbia at that time um, doing a grad degree and started Nestec in 2009, 2010. 
um, you know, so spent a lot of t t like early time looking and uh, connecting with whether it's Betterment or at the time Kaching prior prior to Wealthfront or any of the other digital digital plays uh, in wealth tech, and I think we were we were all in this dark forest for three four years uh, until about 2012 when the theme really hit the mainstream and the word robo advisor, regardless of how people feel about it, really helped. Um, the the public imagination understand what what the purpose was of of digital finance, um, and at the same time, I got a lot of demand. Again, rightly or wrongly, a separate point, but a lot of demand from RAAs for, hey, can I get this for my business? Can I private label it? Can I put my logo on it? Um, and we know that's not a straightforward journey. But in 2012, there was just an overwhelming you know amount of demand. Uh, 50, 100 kind of inbounds. And you can imagine me with a small team kind of trying to scratch this thing together. And it was, it was very empowering. Um, and so we took the company in the direction of going from B2C to B2B2C. Um, and I partnered up with uh, Rich Cancro um, as an as a entrepreneur. He ended up acquiring Nest Egg into a new entity. And I was the, the chief operating officer of that entity. Uh, which is now called Advisor Engine. And we had built from scratch, essentially, a, a full wealth management platform across uh, the advisor experience, trading rebalancing, then acquired a CRM. Uh, and, and similarly, on the B2C side, the, the client experience and uh, you know all the checkboxes of financial planning and billing and integration into custodians. Uh, and so for me, that was a really interesting journey into seeing how uh, how to be right over a long period of time, right? So if, you, if you're correcting your hypothesis and you stand still, the market comes to you. Uh, but you also need to sort of adjust to where the waves are going. And I think uh, working with financial institutions around 2014, 2015 was uh, the, the right bet and even more so today. Um, after, after spending a, a few years doing digital wealth, I joined a... Um, of all things, an equity research shop called Autonomous Research. And in part, I was trying to figure out, you know, th there's digital wealth, and that's the automation of the front office or the automation of the, hum of, the, of the experience. What else is there? What is there in banking? What is there in lending? What is there in payments? What is there in insurance? You know, it's not an isolated vertical with a bunch of regulations around it. It's just one point in a continuum of what people do with their money. And then similarly, like, Putting things in a phone is great, but that's, again, not the end all. Uh, there were much bigger platform shifts around the corner, those being artificial intelligence and um, uh, blockchain, which I'm sure we'll talk about in some form, and virtual reality and the, you know, the, the sort of like the balance between the East and the West. Um, and so I spent three years at Autonomous building out a fintech practice that looked at public companies and looked at what they were doing in the space and went deep into these themes to really articulate um, like a coherent view, uh, a framework that I can use over and over and over again to, to have an answer for myself. Um, lucky for me, and despite uh, probably all my efforts to the contrary, the business was uh, acquired by uh, Alliance Bernstein uh, about two years ago. Uh, and I was excited about getting back to operating and found you know what I think is honestly, the most promising and transformational part of financial services today, which is decentralized finance and consensus being kind of the gorilla in that space, um, 
joined joined it in 2019 to help figure out the direction and and help stand up that business. Good overview. I, you know, I didn't realize you started Nest Egg while you were still in school. Yeah, it's a little bit of a hack there. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit is <clears throat> right. The um, so now that you're at Consensus, has it been a year yet? It's been a year and a half. Uh, and in crypto years, it's been, you know, <laughs> it's like an inception where you're on the planet with the giant waves and your spaceships and the black hole and time's going by a thousand times faster. And your your one second in the wave is like 25 years of, uh, of your life. Um, and that's basically how I feel. I was thinking the exact same thing, but that's not inception. That's, um, that's the Matthew McConaughey movie. Ah, yes. Planet got the same soundtrack but it's not inception you're right it's um i'm thinking the exact same thing they're on that water planet for for an hour and it's 25 years goes by yeah all right and it's just it's everyone's everyone's super sad at the end (laughs) that's all we remember is the emotion yeah uh so so um i was going through some things to talk about we were bouncing some ideas around can you um so i want to get to to decentralized finance but first i want to talk about um what you mentioned, the, the sort of the, the large technology fintechs and, and how they're managing to grow and where this is all going. So can you talk about some of the things you, you just posted in, and I'll get a pitch for your newsletter that you have. Um, so, that, so this is called the, 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 um, the Fintech Blueprint. And uh, yes, so that's a great, it's a great newsletter. I read, I read it all the time, uh, very interesting stuff. So you had two uh, robo-related advisor, or not necessarily robo-advisors, but two robo-related type of news stories. One was uh, Wealth Simple hitting unicorn status, and then M1 Finance closing uh, another round of financing. So they're both robos, but they're very different. So can you talk about what you mentioned, large tech fintechs and how they're cloning other other vendors and, and offering all these different services and where you see that converging to? Yeah, it's it's really it's really interesting to try and you know pull apart the dynamics of of these things and you can always go one macro level higher and you can often also go one micro level deeper on on many things but going macro and trying to understand the causes of these things can be really fruitful you know and when I primarily wore my wealth tech hat. It was very much this conversation of like, well, the TAMPs do asset allocation. And if we just repackage asset allocation and put a mobile experience on top, like that's that's what the product should be. Or, you know, it's this pie chart that is um, uh, like a, like a, uh, I forget all the words, um, you know, like, like a sub-advisor and, what you're really offering on top of that is financial planning and that's the value or, you know, like your tax advice or whatever it is. Um, and that's, that, that comes with, you're presupposing um, the, the question, you're, the answer that you're finding, which is like, oh, in 2015 or 2014, Betterman's just a pie chart or Wealthfront's just a pie chart. You're, you're, asking a question, you're asking an uninteresting question and you're getting an uninteresting answer, which is the uninteresting question is how can you automate an asset allocation? And the uninteresting answer is, well, you have a questionnaire and it, and it spits it out and then you figure out which custodian to implement it in. The interesting question is what happens when bottoms up, 
you boil down every single financial function and financial instrument into its digital form and not in a sort of window dressing way of what does it mean for a custodian or a broker dealer to quote unquote digitize. But if you, if you really rethink how that comes together and then you're able to repackage it in a very integrated way. And by the way, the whole thing feels like a video game. And so you've seen this happen now in a number of different verticals. You've seen this happen with retail trading and Robinhood. And there, you know, advisors have a lot of things to say about Robinhood. Um, Robinhood makes $600 million and destroyed commissions for the whole industry and made it clear that the only thing that actually makes money in capital markets is uh, market making. Everything else is, there, there's no other value in trading other than market making, you know, and, um, and that's, that's what Robinhood taught us. Similarly, you know, things like Chime or, or Moneyline, which are these point solutions for the underbanked or various permutation of, of banking services focused on um, injecting credit into people's lives, right? So um, I get my paycheck every two weeks, but my bills are continuous. And so I need credit throughout the weeks and I don't want to go to a payday lender. And by the way, most Americans don't have anything saved or are in debt. Um, we know the statistics, right? And so these digital companies have done something about it, which is they've re-architect it, what it means to be uh, a bank or a broker dealer or a payments company. For example, um, I believe it's Chime, although I might be wrong. It, it might be, um, uh, it might be Moneyline, where the, the whole point of the free debit account is actually not the debit account. It's the interchange fee that you get from card spending. So you're giving somebody a bank account that they can access all the sort of cash flow services, but the, the fees that the company earns, which can be 1% or 2%, come from actual spending. So imagine if you're a financial advisor and you're giving advice on spending, you can charge 200 bucks for a plan that nobody ever reads. Or let's say you can charge 1% on that client's spending because you also give them the card, right? So um, you're having these shifts in the packaging of the, uh, the products underneath. And that's happened in all these different verticals, including wealth and lending and so on. And now where we are is that it's, it's, a, it's fairly trivial to put them all back together. So it, it's fairly trivial for Wealthfront, the RAA, to say we also offer uh, a bank card, even though they don't offer the bank card, but they can say it. It's trivial for Robinhood to do it. It's the same thing for, you know, for, for folks who do um, who, who do the banking services to offer trading. You know, they just plug into Drive Wealth or, or another uh, trading as a service provider. And these financial APIs re rewire and reconnect the existing uh, ecosystem. And so when you look at Wealth Simple and you say, how can Wealth Simple have one and a half million users? I think if I go to the robo days, I think my, my comp is still gonna be a hundred to hundred thousand users would be fantastic, you know. And personal capital had their ten million users, but they were all basically leeching off data aggregation and using that as a candy to 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 manage the money of maybe a hundred thousand people. So how does Wealthsimple have one and a half million users, which makes it worth over a billion um, Canadian dollars, um, over a billion dollars? And the answer is they've bolted on two things. On top of the asset allocation, they've bolted on free trading like Robinhood in Canada, um, and they've bolted on uh, crypto trading. So 
um, they have this high penetration because they're giving people something that is not just the right thing, which is the, the wealth journey, but it's also sort of like the candy that actually sells, which is the activity of trading and then the sort of lottery option value of holding you know, some percentage of your assets in, in crypto. And so for me, that bundling, that, that coming together of the different pieces explains a lot. And it almost looks like the Citigroup of the 80s, except it's much, much faster. And it's, it's, it's digital at its core and it's distributed digitally. And so it has much bigger outcomes in terms of the, the audience that it can capture. You know, I think for, for M1, it's a similar type of, uh, a type of news, uh, except it's the asset allocation that I believe is free. And then the firm is structured as a broker dealer and partners with a bank, right? So they could be money making money on interchange. So the payments that, um, the payments that come from offering a private label card and then giving away asset allocation for free. And so if you're sitting in the wealth bubble and, and you're like, oh, my fees suck. Well, you could be making 1% on, on cash deposits. You could be making the spread on, um, on the commerce and payments that your clients are putting together. And if you look at the tech companies that are doing it, you have no choice but to go that route because um, the economics are so thin. You know, the final thing I'll say is just, I remember how difficult it was to raise any amount of money for these plays. And it just mind boggling to me, the, the, the speed at which the capital is flowing in this space now. Um, you know, if I were a traditional wealth firm, I wouldn't feel more relaxed and say Robo's dead. I would feel much more anxious to see my competition come from digital lenders and neobanks and Coinbase, which has got 30 million users. Um, and basically all the incumbents, I, I would feel, uh, I, I would see it as a much more competitive space because the industries that in the past didn't touch this are also in there as well. All good stuff. So that was a lot to, uh, to get in there one, one at one time. I was taking some notes. I don't, um, I'm not trying to make it easy for you. No, it's, I don't want you to. Uh, <laughs> so I think that what you're talking about with Revolut, with the debit card, with the interchange fees, you just posted that on LinkedIn. I just reply. I was replying to you earlier about the about how they they claim it's a savings account and they're giving you five percent on your savings, but it's really not. It's really a bonus. It's really a cash back reward. It's super weird. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's super weird. Yeah. But I, I, you know, the point of the interchange fees is is important because that's where all the revenue is coming from. But you, you're you're picking up on a couple of things that I talk about a lot that Wealthfront and, and Betterment than any advisor or, 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 or robo-advisor, they're just an RIA because that's how they make their money. And they're only going to be valued as an RIA. But firms like Acorns, um, Money Lion, Chime, you know, there's the couple of them put together have 30 million users, which is more than a lot of big banks have. They're much more likely to monetize their user base than a Wealthfront or a Betterment is. Would you agree with it? Yeah, for sure. I think we are, uh, we're the frog that's being boiled slowly, right? Where it's like, oh, this doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. It's only this much. It's only this much, you know, and 10 years passes and you're dead. I mean, uh, and you don't even have to be 
um, like a bad player in order for that to be the case. Like, I think TD was, is a fantastic custodian and a really interesting brokerage player. And it, it's, it's hard. It's, it's now, you know, there, there, um, there has to be consolidation in the industry and you can see the Schwab TD deal. You can look at uh, Morgan Stanley E-Trade and Eaton Vance, right? So like, if you want to look at the other adjacent categories, it's going to be FIS and Fiserv have all integrated with payments players. You can look at Visa and Plaid and MasterCard and, and card issuing. There's all there's basically a consolidation in the manufacturing of financial product. Um, and, and the reason is supply, you know, it's as basic economics as you could have. It's not that robo-advice set the price at 25 basis points. It's that you know, demand is flat and supply is up. Everybody is offering asset management and investing and banking and payments because it's easy because technology has lowered the barrier um, to do that. And so you have price collapse and with price collapse, um, you need consolidation. The second dynamic, which I think is the, if you, again, if you're talking about macro, this is what's on top of it. The second dynamic is the high-tech firms have won. It's over. Like in 10 years ago or five years ago, there was this question of, you know, is it, is it the financial incumbents or the fintechs? Well, the answer is it's the financial incumbents. Okay, is it the financial incumbents or the high-tech firms? The answer is it's the high-tech firms. It's already over. There is no chance. There's no going back. Um, you know, maybe Goldman or BlackRock, uh, the, the consolidated footprints, they might have a shot. But you're in a world where Deutsche Bank is worth 15, 20 billion and Apple is worth 2 trillion and has 200 billion on its balance sheet. You know, like the question of are the tech firms in finance is, is, is like, it's an absurd question. Because the only way that you can access any financial product is through through this object, right? Is over here through the phone. Um, you bank with Apple. You don't bank with your bank. You open up Apple, and that's your bank. And then you click on an app inside of Apple, and guess who authenticates you, right? Like, um, and I think if you look at the broader sort of dynamic, then of okay, it's the high tech firms that have won. Uh, because there's nothing the banks can do at this point other than provide the the risk capital and the product, the financial uh, capital underneath. Then it's the question of, is it the Western model or the Eastern model? And, you know, the Western model is high tech sits in media and sells advertising and is disallowed by the government to participate in financial services and therefore has flowed around it into financial APIs and embedded finance. But at the score is the sort of like, this like betrayal, right? Of um, you sign up for a high tech product and, and you become sold for all these purposes, which are divisive. Or there's the Eastern model, uh, which for me, the Ant Financial is the, you know, the, the key example. And in the Eastern model, the high tech firms are payments companies first. So they're, they're either a payments chassis or a commerce chassis. You know, so they're closer to Amazon but if you have you know, a combination of Square and Amazon together, um, you bring your payments, the, the payments identity lives inside of this platform, which has 80 million businesses on it, right? So instead of it being Apple, it's actually a payments money management company, which is the tech provider. And so I think that's gonna be the next 10 years, the, the, um, the war between 
can the West integrate finance quickly enough in, into its tech? And then for the East, can the East, will it be contained and blocked or will sort of like the national spending that China and uh, India are, are doing to uh, grow those industries, will that be sufficient to push into Europe and the Middle East and Africa? Uh, you know, and I think you're starting to, to see some of that in how TikTok and Tencent and potentially Ant Financial are being handled by um, or attempted to be handled by the current administration. So again, we started kind of really narrow talking about, well, this is your wealth app and it's your asset allocation. What, why do people use it? And it very quickly goes into these industry dynamics, which are much bigger and I think much more complicated. Yeah, it does grow, it does grow pretty quickly. Uh, so a couple of things you mentioned, is, is everything consolidating? Is everything converging? Is, will there ever be um, a company that can live with just one of these components, whether it's wealth or banking or lending or saving? They're all, they all seem to be adding everything at once. You know, Wealthfront, and this has been said by many people that Wealthfront can't possibly make enough money at 25 basis points to pay back their investors. They're gonna need more revenue streams. And they're doing it by, by getting into banking. They realize they need that. It's not enough to just offer asset management services or investment management services. So will every app or every, um, every financial provider have to offer the entire suite or can some go with just one? Uh, I think the, the question has these interesting built-in assumptions, right? Which is like, what does it mean for one of these businesses or one of these apps to have to do something? Like, well, why does it have to do something? If you and I are on our, um, our safe island and we have an app with 100,000 people and a billion in AUM and the technology has become so cheap that through APIs we've integrated uh, some version of open source wealth management and we're just milking that as we would any other sort of non-growth um, cash cow, then that's fine. It, we don't have to do anything. I think if you do have this venture pressure and the venture pressure has gotten worse than it was ever been before. I mean, the blitz scaling, the soft banks, the DSTs that are putting $250 million checks every six months into Robinhood um, are creating super weird dynamics um, in the market. And, you know, this is all fueled again by the interest rate environment and the stock market and the broader weirdness about where money has to go. Um, but if you, if you're, trying to get to a place where you have enough touch points and economics from your clients to um, equate a $500 million burn, then you have absolutely no choice other than to go um, across you know, every single feature that you possibly can and get there as fast as you can. But here's the mistake that people make. Um, including me, which is to think kind of linearly about what's possible. You know, in your financial model, you know, Betterment hits break even at 25 billion and therefore to get their money back to their investors, it's got to be at 100 billion and is that going to happen and what time frame? It's totally the wrong question. Um, who would have predicted that, that, that Plaid would sell for $5 billion to Visa? Why would a payments network, not even a um, card provider or, or you know, somebody that, that is primarily in the business of doing rails. Why would a rails payment company 
purchase a data aggregator that largely does authentication for fintech apps that aren't making money? Yes. And, and the answer is uh, because if you build out the logic tree, they can be existential threats, right? So um, if you can move data around, you can move money around. And specifically in Europe, you have PSD2, which bundles the data with the money. So you can actually use data aggregation to permission uh, interbank transfers, which puts the card network at risk. Um, and then it also gets Visa into all of the fintechs and therefore into all the bank accounts of, of nearly every American. And so it's hard to imagine being there in the beginning for a data aggregation company, you know, and this is the, this is the issue that I think um, Investnet with um, Yodli and certainly, you know, like Intuit with their internal solution has is like, yeah, you can get 50 million in revenues or 100 in revenues, but that's not the game. The game is how do you expose yourself to these platform shifts where all of a sudden you're in wealth management, but a tech company is willing to buy you for 20 times the industry norm. Um, and so for things like Wealthfront or Acorns, you know, I would expect their acquire to be not Goldman or, or you know, Wells Fargo or City. I would expect their acquire to be uh, Tencent or, or some version of, you know, TikTok or some, uh, some other odd, but in retrospect, obvious candidate. I want to take a break from this episode to talk about one of my favorite charities. It's the Invest in Others Charitable Foundation, which is a charity that amplifies the efforts of financial advisors who give back to their communities and communities abroad. Invest in Others provides a platform for financial advisors, their employees, and their firms to increase awareness, visibility, and funding for their favorite nonprofits. Over the past 14 years, Invest in Others has given more than $3 million to 300-plus charities across a variety of causes, including health and wellness, education and youth programs, arts and culture, hunger and poverty prevention, and military veterans and more. For more information, please visit investinothers.org. Uh, follow them on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, and please make a donation and check if your company will match your donations. You'll double the benefit. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. So if I could paraphrase what you're saying is that there's firms that are going to be buying into the space aren't going to be traditional financial firms, traditional wealth management firms, but firms that in and add that. Tencent being primarily an entertainment company with games and other media and such that they'll say, well, now we want to be in the finance business because we've got a lot of cash on. They are in the finance business. Yeah. So they are the, they're the number two, um, they're the number two payment processor in China. Uh, they they power a thing called WeChat, where again the the it's like this the social network, right, with 500 million people or something like that. Um, but the secret power is that I can send you money uh, in my text messages, and I can also go and and shop using that interface. Uh, and so my payment identity is my my uh, social media identity. There is no no behavioral difference. And so money market funds and wealth management funds live in there. You know, and financial's biggest initiatives going forward are uh, distributing Vanguard. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, the soup is different uh, going forward than it was in the past. The soup, yeah. The, um, I liked your comparison of the Western versus Eastern model 
So can we talk about that just a little bit more? Uh, can you explain what you mean when you say that the, that the West is it, the question was, can the West integrate finance quickly enough versus can the East grow quickly enough? So why is it integration versus growth? Why do you see it that way? Well, I think the, the West is starting from a very different place where behaviorally people don't really want to adopt new things. It's, it's a friction, right? So I think large parts of the U.S. are still swiping their credit cards or, you know, they're still... Uh, sending in paper forms to their financial advisor, thinking that is a, uh, a reasonable thing to be doing. And the regulatory environment in the U.S. is, um, you know, puts, puts precedent and consumer protection first in a way that is uh, largely blocking of what are they trying to pretend, prevent? They're trying to prevent Facebook destroying the banking industry, uh, you know, to put it into stark terms. Um, in Inch. Yeah, so it's not consumer protection, it's, it's their constituents protection or the ones who are the banks that are giving them campaign funds. Protection. It's, you know, you use the words of one to do the other. So, you, you know, we can revisit, for example, the reaction to the fiduciary rule, right? Like uh, it was the kind of the, and I'm going to get this wrong too, but it's not the, trans, it may be the trans Americas of the world or similar firms, the LPLs of the world uh, might've had an allergy because they have, um, they have commission-based businesses to the fiduciary, the fiduciary rule, whether from the DOL or the SEC. Um, whereas, you know, the, the robo-advisors were all about the fiduciary rule and, and thought it was, um, uh, it was good change. And it's sort of, it's like, it's this conversation about what does an individual need? What does a human being need to be taken care of or to have the freedom to buy bad stocks for too much, too much commissions? Um, and so the conversations about the consumer behavior, but behind that is really like the, I think the incumbent interest. You see the same thing with the banking industry in the States. So, you know, the OCC keeps trying to put out this FinTech charter, which would let Square and PayPal and, um, and other, you know, Stripe have easier access to holding people's deposits and then local state um, kind of banking organizations just keep suing the OCC for overstepping its mandate. So. I, th I think that's just inherent in um, uh, in our society. So we're running out of time, but I want to hit a couple more topics. The um, so the news I was just looking at some of the news that Robinhood valuation hit eleven billion. Do you see that ever ending? Is there no end for that valuation? Is it going to hit a wall? Are people going to realize that they're not making any money day trading and it's going to fall off, or is it just going to keep growing? Um, I'm somebody that is, I, I'm somebody that comes from like an asset allocation and modern portfolio theory background, putting aside that none of the numbers work anymore, but regardless, like I diversify and hold, like, sure, believe in that. So for me, Robinhood was always a sign of kind of selling candy uh, and especially giving away candy, right? So it's both, it's both delicious and addictive and bad for people in the long run. And so, you know, I, I continue to believe that. Um, at the same time, you have to observe what Robinhood has done, which is it has, it has thrown so much money at user acquisition and training people in certain ways um, that the net effect is retail trading is something like 40% of market volumes now. Uh, that's a two to three X over the same as last year. I think COVID has played a large part in that because we're all trapped in our houses. And so everybody's in these digital experiences. Um, there's also, I think, underneath the trading sort of like this, this um, 
this it's not a sadness but it's everyone is trapped in a terrible financial situation so you know when what what is what a CEOs of failing companies do they take out a whole bunch of debt that the firm can cannot possibly repay but it's like the moonshot you know to try and get out of it and so i think for a lot of americans it's this is why you buy crypto assets this is why you know you kind of you take out too much too, too much lending it's because you have no choice you're in such a hole that you need something to give you a narrative to get out of that and i think robinhood is yeah, amplified that to such an extent that it eradicated the previous industry equilibrium around you know commission pricing and so there is no commission pricing anymore for anybody and then it exposed you know it generates 600 million in revenue like it's it's or a billion in revenue it's not a it's not a fintech struggling to make money um but what it has where does that revenue come from the revenue comes from high frequency trading shops that act as market makers in capital market. What, what does that mean? It means that um, they buy and sell on both sides and they take a spread in between. Uh, they don't take really exposure to any asset. They do it really fast. Um, and you know they get retail flows from one side and that gives them liquidity to close out trades on the other side. And you can have super funky outcomes. It's the equivalent of advertising for Google, right? Selling the product of attention. In this case, it's selling the product of order flow. And so I think Robinhood, um, we're in a transition to a different equilibrium for, for, for equities. Um, and I think that transition benefits Robinhood in a strong way and makes it much more difficult for firms that want to be fiduciaries um, and, and want to do well by the client because, uh, the only revenue pool sort of left is either is either um, cash accounts and interest on that, which is very low, or trying to incentivize payments uh, through interchange, and then or trying to incentivize uh, trading um, and kind of churn in an account. So I don't think there is necessarily a cap on that to answer the question more directly, um, and I think that's at the expense. It's like a, it's like a social cost um, that that has been born as a result of that. Can you give me a one minute answer? Why are you a fintech heretic? Um, why am I a fintech heretic? I I must get bored easily. And so I always look for what's the edge. You know, what's the where's the place where people are breaking the thing? Um, and and reimagining how it could be. So even in a in a situation where 99% of the industry is the same, I'm always gonna look at that one percent that is behaving in a different way. And so this is why I'm interested in DeFi. This is why I'm interested in how uh, crypto assets repackage financial instruments and repackage asset allocations and automate all the things about actually manufacturing the financial product, um, how they break global regulation, how um, you custody and hold them in a different way. Uh, and I think, you know, we, as, as people have only so much time to, to spend and uh, for me, spending my time on things that are curious and different um, is where I get the biggest payoff. So, you know, that's that's always been my frame. Uh, Lex, you've said it all. We're out of time. We went right up to the end, right up to the last minute, the last second of time available. Thanks so much. Uh, chock full of information. Uh, I'm sure everyone's going to get a lot out of this and really appreciate your time spent uh, with us today. My pleasure. Um, 
I'm easy to find on the web at Lex Oakland, uh, or if you want to see consensus, it'll be consensus.net. And also, of course, install MetaMask, play with it, metamask.io. Thanks, everybody. Please do. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Lex. My pleasure. Hey, it's Craig again. What are my takeaways from this episode? Um, you know, Lex can just... Uh... Hey, it's Craig again. Uh, and here are my takeaways from the episode uh, of the fintech heretic, Lex Sokolin. You know, he, he's got so much good things, so many good things to say and is so insightful. It's hard to pick just a couple of takeaways. Um, financial APIs will rewire the existing ecosystem really uh, got hit the nail on the head there. Uh, how all these firms are offering free debit accounts and taking money from the interchange fees. Uh, it's really changing the way wealth management works. Uh, wealth simple being worth a billion dollars by adding crypto trading and free trading. Uh, you know, so the, the wealth part isn't worth a billion dollars. It was only when they added the trading that it became worth a billion dollars. So you can see why what people are valuing in the space. It's not the wealth management part, but it's the, as. Uh, as Lex said, the candy part, uh, the trading, the lottery aspect of holding some crypto. Uh, I was really interested in his Eastern versus Western model um, of FinTech. Great insights there, uh, love talking about that stuff. And um, you know how they're giving away asset allocation for free at M1. Uh, and again, they're also making 1% on cash deposits uh, plus the spread and how it's really changing the way robo-advisors and FinTechs are working so I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to your podcast and leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share this on social media. And we'll see you all again next time.